He is risen. He is risen. Amen. Today we'll be in Psalm chapter 33. If you would, turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 33. If you are in need of a Bible, somebody will come down the aisle. You can raise your hand. Somebody will come down the aisle and bring you one, I think. Or maybe not. If you don't have a Bible, look on with somebody to your left or your right and tell them don't be stingy. There we go. We'll be in Psalm 33 today. Um, two weeks ago, we, had, we heard a word from Psalm chapter 27, and the topic was waiting on the Lord. And we try to see from Psalm 27 that we should wait on the Lord with courage, that we should wait on the Lord seeking his face, and we also should be obedient as we wait on the Lord. Today in Psalm 33, we'll see that we should wait on the Lord and rejoice while we're doing so. We should wait on the Lord with joy. Follow along as I read Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our hearts is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Amen. Psalm 33 is kind of interesting because we're not told who the author is or when it was written or why it was written. But though we don't have those details, at a glance we can determine who the psalm is written to. Well, of course, it was generally written to the Israelites, 
They were the ones entrusted with the word of God at that time. But the psalmist is a little more specific. It says it's addressed to the righteous in Psalms 33.1. So it says, oh, you righteous. And so many people at that time who were Israelites, they many had abandoned God. Many were considered evil. But there also were a few who were righteous, who were walking in the ways of the Lord, who did not sit in the seat, in the seat of the scornful, but delighted in his law. And so they were righteous. They feared the Lord, and out of love, they obeyed him. So while, yes, this psalm is written to Israel as a whole, the psalm is particularly speaking to the righteous ones. And as I zoom out the passage and look at all of redemptive history, I could say that if you have placed your faith in Christ and are committed to walking by the Spirit, then you can confidently say that you are one of the righteous ones. And so this psalm is in many ways applies to you, applies to us as a church, those who are in Jesus. And what the psalmist is saying, what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through the psalmist is that the righteous ones should rejoice in the Lord because of his amazing steadfast love. We should rejoice in the Lord because his steadfast love is upon us. We should rejoice in the Lord because his steadfast love is upon us. So, in verses 1 to 3, I read again. Shout for joy in the Lord, all you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song and play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. And the Spirit of God is speaking through the psalmist. And what he's trying to do in these first, first verses is he's trying to jumpstart their hearts and get their engines revved up to worship. And the avenue of worship in this case is singing. Now the psalmist says in the beginning, shout for joy in the Lord. At the end he says, with loud shouts. So I gather that they should be shouting or singing loudly. He doesn't want their library voices or their inside voices. He wants their playground or their cheering in the stands voices. He wants the volume turned up. He wants it to be loud, and he wants it to be good. He tells them to grab their best instruments, the lyre and the harp, and get some skillful musicians to sing to the Lord a new song, loud and good, and a new song. New songs were often composed and sung after the Lord had brought some great deliverance. But even if there is no great deliverance, we should always sing a new song to the Lord. New doesn't have to mean something that you write down new. It could just mean that it carries, it has, it's fresh. I order the same pizza, but each time I eat it, it better be freshly made. It should be new. Not stale, not overnight, not left out, not dry, because that don't sit well with my stomach. And so fresh praise befits the righteous. And so every time we sing, it should be done with a fresh sense of the goodness and the majesty and the glory of God. And it should be loud. 
Now, I know that some people think it's improper to shout or to be loud, but the psalmist says, praise, this manner of praise befits the upright. Loud praise and singing to the Lord is not improper. It's suitable for the occasion. Now, I know that when we come to church, we come with our thinking caps on because we are looking to hear and understand the Word of God, but we also must come with our garments of praise. In fact, it's probably poor etiquette to come to the banquet feast of the Lord with a sluggish, melancholy, lazy, dull worship. The magnitude and the beauty of our Lord should in some measure be reflected in the magnitude and the beauty of our singing. He doesn't tell us to sing loud because he's far away and can't hear us. He tells us to sing loud because he's high and lifted up. And so our voices should be high and lifted up. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And by his grace, he has made a promise to, to care for people, care for his righteous ones. That's why we can call him by his name, Lord. And so this extravagant praise befits the upright. So if someone turns to you or sends you an email and says, you're singing too loud, send one back and say, you're not singing loud enough. It's proper. And it should be good. And it, should, it can be with instruments and musicians. And now we should sing loud, not because of the music, or matter of fact, the music should not be turned up over the volume of the voices, but the music should aid the voices. So instruments and musicians are just an aid to help us sing to the Lord. So we want to make sure that we don't worship the worship music. Beware of going to church only because of the worship or singing experience. That's a subtle temptation that everybody faces. So it takes humility by the worship leaders and those up front, and it takes mental and spiritual vigilance by the congregation to make sure that they aren't praising the music instead of praising the Lord. There are times when I left the service when I was like, man, that, that man could sing, a woman could sing, or when we used to have played an organ, I like, they used to make that organ talk. But I didn't leave saying, oh, Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And the problem wasn't primarily theirs. The problem was mine. We have to take every precaution, every step to make sure that when we're singing, we are singing to the Lord and that we're praising the Lord. We need to make sure our eyes are fixed on him. And I praise the Lord that we have a special gift in Amos and in those who sing up front. I'll tell you why we have a good gift in them and in Amos, because Amos is better than what y'all know. Amos got skills that he hasn't shown us yet. And to some degree, that's good because he recognizes himself as just a voice pointing to the Lord. He recognizes that it's not about him looking good, but by him lifting up Jesus. And so we praise the way that sometimes that he would may calm down his skills so that everybody else can be heard and can sing and can sing along. 
Now, when he get his CD, he need to go all in. But when he's leading us, he's helping us worship with him to the Lord. And so we praise the Lord for Amos, and we should always pray for Amos because there are many temptations that come with being up front. Temptations that come with, with, with being in front and the possibility of fame or notoriety. So we have to pray that the Lord will guard his heart and guard everybody else's heart who's up here. And we praise the Lord the way that he has done that already by his grace. So when the team is, te- so when the worship team or leaders is telling us to clap or sing aloud, don't in your mind say, I'm not good enough. They already know you're not good enough. That's why you're not up front. <laughs> you sing aloud to the Lord because he's good. And God isn't worried about if you could sing or not. He exalts that you're exalting him. So sing aloud to the Lord and be free in your worship. Now, one of the ways we know that we are worshiping the Lord and not worshiping worship is by the content of our songs, the why behind, or the why of our singing. That's how we guard ourselves from blasphemy. That's how we guard ourselves from dishonoring the Lord by asking ourselves, by, by thinking of what are we singing, the words. And so the psalmist doesn't just say, sing, 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 sing. He now leads us into, okay, now what should we sing about? So if we take it in verse, and what he wants us to sing about and think about is the amazing steadfast love of God. That's why if you notice in verse 5, it says the whole earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. In verse 18, it says, his eye is on those who put their hope in his steadfast love. And, and in 22, he ends with the prayer of let your steadfast love be upon us. So with the repetition, we can gather, we can see that the an important theme of the passage is the steadfast love of the Lord. And there are many ways you can describe the love of the Lord. Some people, sometimes the scriptures say that it's, his love is kind, loving kindness, and so with that carries the idea that his, it's opposed to that boot camp uh, major pain, kind of, kind of a break you down kind of love. It's, it's gentle. It's for your good, loving kindness. And then we can describe his love as steadfast. Steadfast I means it's firm. It's fixed. It's settled. It's not going anywhere. The type of love that is expressed in a covenant. So the Passover in this passage, the the Lord is showing us different ways in which we can now have a firmer conviction in which the Lord's love is steadfast. He shows us by pointing out God's character and by his power and how he works in creation. And so in verse 4 and 5, it says, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves the righteous and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. The word upright is packed with meaning. It, it means his word is honest, it's true, it's pure, it's without error. It does not lead down any wrong path. Every promise, every revelation that God has given is good. And now a good word without a faithful 
person is, is called smooth talking or a swindler. But it says that all his work is done in faithfulness. In faithfulness to what? In faithfulness to his word. The Lord is faithful to his word and to his glory. And there is no hypocrisy or deceit or game in him. He has the utmost integrity. And he loves righteousness and justice. Righteousness. He acts according to his own law and without sin. In accordance with his own law and he is without sin. Justice. He executes judgment with, without partiality. He examines the truth of the case and makes a right verdict. He loves faithfulness and justice and righteousness and his character is excellent. And that's from whom this steadfast love flows from. The Lord who has, is excellent in all of his ways and all of his being. But not only is his character excellent, but his power is impeccable. So we see that in verses 6 through 9. In the beginning, this, when he says the word of the Lord made the, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth are their hosts. He's taking us back to the beginning in Genesis 1, right? It said God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Lord said, let there be light. And there was light. And then he said, let the expanses of the waters, and let, it separate, let me separate the waters, and he did that. And then he created the heavens and the dry land, and he did it all by his, his word. Now that's power. That's power. We all work by the sweat of our brow in the little things that we do. I, got, I sweat when I'm sweeping. By the breath of his mouth, by his simple word, he created the entire world. And he sustains the world. So in verse 7, he says that he gives us illustration, this image of God having the waters and the heaps and in storehouses. All that to say that he controls the waters and everything. And he does it currently. So it says he gathers. That means he's still doing it. His, his hand still has control. He didn't create the world and then just let it go and run by itself. No, he is the one that holds it all together. That's his providence. So whatever your view of science is, it must include the fact that God is the one who is maintaining life. Water is in the ground, it's in the atmosphere, covers 71% of the earth, and he has it all under control. And he has it measured in the palm of his hand. Many people look and when they see a catastrophe like a flood, they, they say, where was God? And I completely understand that. And we have to remember that God was there holding the floods back for a time. He, the one, holds the floods back, and he lets the floods go. His hand is completely in control over all things. And he keeps the starry host in the sky. And he knows them all by name. This is the power of our God. And this is the power of his steadfast love for you. And his love is, he's faithful in his love. 
His, his love is powerful, and His love for you is unchangeable. Follow along as I read 10 through 17 again. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His inheritance. It's unchangeable because His counsel stands forever. And he shows that his counsel is unchangeable by way of contrast in verse 10 through 12. The plans of the nations have no match with the Lord. The smartest, largest group can come together and have a forum and have a think tank or a committee. But at the word of the Lord, their plans are frustrated, confused. But the counsel of the Lord stands forever. So that's why verse 12 is so so wonderful because if he has chosen to save a people, then there's nothing that can stop him from doing it. Everybody who is the Lord's are kept by him. And nothing will change that. So that's why even in verses 13 to 17, people he says you could they could have their best king and their best army, and they could have the warrior with great strength in verse 16. They could have a, a war horse in verse 17, but it's all false hope because the Lord looked down from heaven, and he looks into the earth, and he knows the hearts of man, and he has even fashioned their hearts. There's nothing that he doesn't know. And therefore, having a God who knows everything, who, can, who controls everything, of course his plans will stand firm. Of course nothing against him will last, will, will, will prevent him from completing his task for his people and for his glory. His plans are unchangeable. So it's futile to go against the Lord. This is the excellence of his character and his being and his power and his unchangeable ways. And so that's why we can rejoice in his steadfast love. Because this Lord has his eye on those who fear him. So in verse 18, it says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. When the Bible says the eye of the Lord is on you, what comes to mind? What, what kind of emotions are aroused in you when you realize that the Lord is watching your every move? Is it mainly fear? Is it mainly trepidation? Do you begin to walk around now on eggshells thinking that he's just waiting to, to pounce on you if you do something wrong? I'm not saying it's wrong to fear the Lord. We should fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And in 1 Peter it says Christians ought to fear the Lord knowing that he, would not, that, that knowing that he is an impartial judge. The fear of the Lord kind of kind of 
provokes us and moves us to walk in holiness to him. So we should fear him. However, we must remember that he loves us. He loves us. And so we can hope in his steadfast love. He doesn't look on us to destroy us, but he looks on us to deliver us. His love towards us is really love. It's really patient. It's really kind. His steadfast love does not delight in doing you evil, or does he rejoice in evil, but he rejoices in the truth. His love for you is hopeful. He has good thoughts and plans for you. He's faithful to his righteous ones. He's faithful to his righteous ones. His steadfast love is for you. Which means he, if he made a covenant to love you, you're in Christ. He's made a covenant to love you. Therefore, whether you get grumpy or you get mad or you get disappointed, please know that his love has not turned dry. It has not gone cold for you because he has a steadfast and faithful love. He fashioned and made you. And he's still making you into the image of Christ. He knows all of your shortcomings and your weaknesses. And after taking that assessment, he still says, I love you. Our joy is oft times low. Our joy, our love for him ebbs and flows. But peace with him remains the same, right? Because no change our Savior knows. We change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not ours, is the resting place. His truth, not ours, is the tie. He has a steadfast love and a faithful love that's for us. And look, the reason that he frustrates our plans, he don't just frustrate the plans of his enemies, the reason that he frustrates our plans is because of his steadfast love for us. Listen, one plan, one plan I'm so glad that he frustrated for me and for all of us is our plan to go to hell. We were once lost in darkness night and thought we knew the way. The sin that we loved that had promised us joy in life really was leading us to the grave. We was on a hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost. But the Lord looked on our state and led us to the cross. And as we beheld as love displayed, we saw him suffering in our place. The wrath he bore was for us. Now all we know is this steadfast love and grace. We was on our way to hell, planned for it, loved it, and the Lord frustrated our plans, disoriented our lives, and now made us come to him. That's the steadfast, amazing love of the Lord for you. I'm so glad that he frustrated our plans. 
And listen, the worst thing that has ever happened to you in this life was still in control by his steadfast love. I'm not dismissing pain. I'm I'm not mitigating any impacts of real horrendous things that happen, whether it is rape or adultery or being abused or losing a loved one, being bullied, not getting into a particular college, not getting a job. He sees those tears. He takes note of them. He, he counts the tossing and turning at night. Every tear that falls is in some way in his bottle, and he has them all written down. He cares for you. And know this, that the same way that he holds the stead, the same way that his power holds back the floods and controls the world and controls all of the waters and keeps them in heaps, that same power will make sure that your flood of despair or heartache or depression will not take you out. He will not let it take you out because his steadfast love is upon you. So you can, in the midst of your tears, Rejoice. Though the billows may roll and the breakers may dash, you will not sway because he holds you fast. So dark the day are the clouds in the sky, but just know it's all right because Jesus is nigh. Your soul is anchored in the steadfast love of the Lord. Your soul is anchored by the Lord. You have a solid rock that will carry you through. His eye is, what, upon you to deliver your soul from death, to keep you alive in the famine, verse 19. That's his purpose, not to exterminate you, but to deliver you, to rescue you, to be your light. So we could put our hope in this steadfast, powerful, unchanging, faithful love that the Lord has. You know, there are times when we don't think that the, the love of the Lord is near. But you know what the word steadfast love means? It's, it's often translated as the word grace in the New Testament. And the fullest picture, and the fullest picture of grace that we see is in Jesus Christ. We can be sure of the steadfast love of Christ for us, the steadfast love of the Lord for us, because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. So Romans chapter 5 says, you could turn there actually, Romans chapter 5. It says this, therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce says endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has, given, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also what? rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Highs or lows, we can rejoice, and we can know that his steadfast love is with us. How can we know? Because Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. The greatest demonstration of God's love is that he sent his Son. We were guilty of breaking every law in a variety of ways, and the penalty was death. But in his grace, he sent his son into the world to live a perfect life for us and to die for our sin so that we can be justified, so that we can be counted righteous, so that we could be the righteous ones, so that we can no longer see death or hell, but can experience eternal life with him. So that our souls will not be left to famish, but will find full satisfaction in him. The steadfast love of the Lord, even behind the clouds, is upon you if you're in Christ. So you can rejoice in that steadfast love. We don't have to look at horses or chariots or bank accounts or number of children or job situation to speculate if God loves us. Look at the death of Christ. Look at the resurrection of Christ. Let's see him seated on the throne and know that he loves you. Place your faith in him. So don't despair. Rejoice as you wait on him. Turn back to Psalm 33. We'll notice that the flow of the psalm the flow, it has a movement. It goes from calling the people to praise the Lord and to giving the people something to praise the Lord about. And then now it leaves them with making a vow and a prayer. And that's often what singing praises to the Lord does. It's not only service to the Lord, but it's actually grace to the singer. God delights in our praises, and he also works through our praise to give us confidence to give us joy. And so look at their confidence. It says, Psalms 20 and 21, 
our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. What a help and what a shield he is. He has all power. He's faithful and he's unchangeable. He's our help and our shield. In verse 21, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. What a wonderful, beautiful, holy name he has. Perfect in excellence. Perfect in all his ways. And then he ends with a prayer in verse 22. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is a collective prayer. It says, let it be upon us. The psalmist is now praying with the righteous ones, for the righteous ones, for us. <laughs> he said, let your steadfast love be upon us, upon all your people. And I can imagine that this is probably one of the intercessory prayers that Jesus is praying for us. <laughs> Let your steadfast love rest upon ARC and every other place that is preaching your gospel. Let your steadfast love rest upon them. And listen, if you have trusted in Christ, his love is upon you, and you can rejoice. And if you have not trusted in Christ and have not obtained his righteousness for yourself, then though you may be rejoicing now, it will eventually turn to mourning. Your singing will turn to sadness. His eye is not upon you to save you, but it will be upon you to judge you. And the wages of sin is death, and when he comes, there will be eternal damnation because you have rejected his ways and his law and rejected this love. And so listen, the love of Christ, the love of God can be for you. It can be for you if you trust in Christ. You can have this peace. You can have the joy of knowing that God is for your good. So turn from your sin and turn to put, to put your hope in him. Don't put your hope in vain things. Don't put your hope in beauty. It fades. Don't put your hope in riches. They dwindle. Don't put your hope in your own works. They're not good enough. Put your hope in Christ. He's good enough. He was good enough. He died for, to bring you to God so that you can join in with the saints, so that you can rejoice. You know, it's, it's a blessing to have another person's possessions or their riches, but it's far better and more glorious to have someone's love. When you have someone's love, you have their pledge to tend to your every need, to give themselves to you, to cherish you, for that you will be close to their heart, to always consider your good for better or worse, in sickness and in health. And God has pledged his steadfast love 
to you. If you're in Christ, you're close to the Father's heart. The love of Christ is rich and free. Fixed on his own eternally. No earth nor hell can it remove. Long as he lives, his own he'll love. His loving heart engaged to be their everlasting surety. T'was love that took your cause in hand, and his love will maintain it to the end. Love has redeemed his sheep with blood, and love will bring you safe to God. Love calls all from death to life, and love will finish all their strife. He loves through all changing scene, nor aught from him can Zion wean. Not all the wonderings of your heart can make his love for you depart. At death, beyond the grave, he'll love. And endless bliss his own shall prove. That blazing glory of that love, which never could from them, from you, be removed. I love the chorus. Love cannot from its post withdraw. You're his post, okay? Love cannot from its post withdraw. Nor death, nor hell, nor sin, nor law can turn the surety's heart away. He love his own till endless day. Love will not leave you. Love is with you. And so hope in his steadfast love. And rejoice as if you have, because you do have, the steadfast love of the Lord upon you. And so you can be confident and you can wait now. You can wait on the Lord, knowing that you are in his love. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we... We join with the psalmist in saying that your steadfast love, your love is better than life to us. In your love, you gave your life for us, and you gave your life to us. And now, Lord God, no matter the circumstance, Lord God, we are in your loving care. And we praise you that your steadfast love is faithful and is powerful and it's unchanging, and it is upon us. So we ask that you will give us the grace to know this within our hearts and to sing with all of our hearts to you in praise for this wonderful love.
there's somebody in here who does not know this love, Lord God. Apply it to their hearts by your Holy Spirit and cause them to call out to you to be your chosen and cherished one forever. It's in your great master's name we pray. Amen.